Blessed art thou, O God, King of the universe, who has not made me a Gentile or a slave or a woman. Still part on some of the uh, pieties of the uh, morning prayer in the synagogue. Thank you that you didn't make me a Gentile or a slave or a woman. We're going to be in Acts chapter 16 today in which uh, a Gentile, three Gentiles, uh, two women and a slave are all converted to faith in Jesus Christ. It's a really sweet chapter. It's printed in your bulletins. Or if you can want to turn there, you can. It's a big deal for us historically because it's the first time that Christianity comes into Europe. Um, the town that they're in is Philippi, which is what is today Greece. And um, you've got these three stories of people converted and the entry to what's going to be a super important part of the world since the time of Jesus until now and the gospel going to Europe. Three different people. Uh, none of them seems like a likely convert. None of them seems much like each other. Uh, one person is Asian, one person is Greek, and one person is Italian. One person is upper class and seemingly pretty wealthy. One person is clearly lower class, and one person is very likely middle class. One of them is a seeker spiritually. One of them is demonically tormented spiritually, and one... Uh, for every guess you can make, is indifferent spiritually. Uh, the thing that they all have in common is that uh, they're not free spiritually in their lives. They all either have visible or invisible prison bars around them and find that they can go free if they come into a relationship with Jesus. And so I want us to look at their stories tonight Um, Just think a little bit about what their lives are like and uh, make some pretty easy parallels for our lives as well. Think about what it means for us to go free by coming into a relationship with Jesus. So let me pray for us and then we'll read the scripture. Father, we ask that um, you would give us hope in believing things that have not changed about us in many, many years uh, are changeable. And uh, things that we don't have hope for, you have hope for. And we ask that you let us feel that as we read your word and hope to hear from you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, read with me, beginning of verse 11 of Acts 16. It says, I'm going to read the bigger print. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and then the following day to Neapolis, from there to Philippi, which is a leading city, the district of Macedonia, and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. And she followed Paul and us, crying out, 
These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And she kept doing this for many days. And Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they're disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us Romans to accept or practice. And the crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Well, having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. And about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, don't harm yourself, we're all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, trembling with fear. He fell down before Paul and Silas, and he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you'll be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. And then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, uh, strange things afoot in Philippi. There's a lot going on. Um, Europe, they were going for the first time uh, to evangelize Europe and the West. And that is interestingly now again our calling as Christians uh, to re-evangelize the West. Uh, we're hoping to see people come to faith who don't have deep Jewish backgrounds and often any kind of uh, religious background or connection to the Bible. So it's fun to watch them as they started off on this. They kind of change how they describe things when they go into Europe uh, with people less familiar. You know, they're going to synagogues and places where people are familiar with Judaism. And they talk a lot about guilt and forgiveness in the synagogue settings and with people who are familiar with the faith. When they go into places where people are less familiar, they talk more about um, slavery and freedom. Not changing the message about what Jesus has done, but speaking in terms of the sense of need that the people they're speaking to had. It's much more about uh, bondage that we live in, either um, uh, actual physical bondage and slavery or the kind of invisible prisons that we, we build for ourselves and our societies built for us uh, that we live in. And the notion is that the kings of the world are bad kings. The gods of the world are bad gods. And the promise of the good life in the world is false. And that we aren't really going to be free until we come home and find our home in Jesus Christ. And so the good life promises that we experience where we live are notions of what will make us happy. But most of these things uh, leave us uh, unusually anxious and stressed. 
it's a strange thing to describe with the kind of comfort and wealth that we experience and the uh, political liberties that we experience that we're as neurotic as we are as a people. But um, the younger you are, it feels like the more likely it is that you are troubled in your life by anxiety and being stressed. And the freedom that's promised hasn't really been parlayed into a lot of experience of freedom. Um, and if you've been around a little bit longer, uh, it's very common for people to be disillusioned, having been promised the good life of advertisements our whole lives and finding that uh, however much of that we've achieved, it hasn't been a satisfying thing for us. Uh, Walker Percy's uh, a writer I like a lot. He surmises at some point, he says, do you think it's possible for someone to miss their life like you would miss a plane? And uh, I think it's the kind of question you ask as you get a little bit older. You think, did I miss my life? <laughs> did I miss the plane that I was supposed to be on? Because promises the good life are rough on us. The meritocracy, which is good in a lot of ways because it gives uh, social mobility to people. But the meritocracy has left us with these uh, exhausted and overstressed children. The uh, promise that beauty makes to us in our lives uh, is a promise that demands more and more from us while delivering less and less. Uh, you are tormented by airbrushed pictures of people who are prettier than people have ever been and are now, and told if you could just lose five more pounds or be a little bit more stylish, uh, that the good life could come to you. And so you go to the gym uh, not to enjoy working out, but you go to the gym compulsively because the gods demand it. And don't feel really free. If you're cool and you're counting on being cool, you've got a lot of work in front of you, right? It's a lot of pressure to be cool. You have to already know what fashions have changed, what opinions have changed, and already be up on them before you ever misspeak or misstep. Or the gods of coolness will punish you. Uh, to try to be cool is a treadmill that feels like a prison at times. Uh, just trying to look different than you feel on the inside. And so we're told in the world by somebody, I don't even know who, maybe it's the system, but to jump and to do tricks and you'll be happy. And yet most of us feel like we're in prison of some sort, that things aren't ever going to change for us and that we're never going to have the life that we thought we might get. We don't feel free. Um, we're terrified that we're going to miss out on something or be left out on something. But we don't feel free and thriving. And these three stories that we read, these three different people who uh, convert to Christianity, are people who probably didn't have any notion that they were going to or any hope that this could happen for them or any notion that their life could ever be any different than it is. And yet Jesus comes in very sweetly and gives them all hope and sets them free in pretty profound ways that are really encouraging to me anyway. Let's start with Lydia. Interesting person. She's an Asian woman, businesswoman, sells purple cloth because she's from Thyatira where they have purple dye. And it's a big deal because purple's what uh, wealthy people wear. It's expensive and hard to get and therefore more prized. So she sells it. So you figure she's uh, relatively successful. Uh, she at least is polished because she has a, a wealthy clientele. Uh, the friends that she has there, she has a pretty big house it sounds like because uh, her house becomes the church building for their church when they get started and uh, so and she's got a family there so 
Winner, right? I mean, she's hitting on all eight. She's, she's got all the things that you're supposed to have to make you happy. She's even spiritually attuned as a person. They don't have a synagogue in this town, but they have a group of people, looks like mostly women, who meet down on the Sabbath day at the river, and they pray together there. And she goes. So, man, I mean, she's spiritual. She's wealthy, successful. Um, in a man's world, she's doing great as a woman. She's got family, house. This is a... What does she need with Jesus? Like, why does she need a Savior? Why does she need Jesus? She's certainly not uh, enslaved. Um, she doesn't feel like a desperate person. She's not at her wit's end. She's not hitting rock bottom or anything like that. Why does she need Jesus? And apparently, God, it says God opens her eyes to listen to them. Another Walker Percy quote. You just wonder if her story isn't this, that... Um, you can make all A's and still flunk life. And uh, she's an all A's kind of person. But when she hears about Jesus, it's interesting. It doesn't just say that she opened her ears to believe it. The literal translation is she, uh, op- God opened her eyes so that she would find beautiful what Paul was saying. She would find beautiful what he's saying. So what, why, is, why was it beautiful to her? No, you, you, uh, the good life always uh, feels a little bit like a tease in a prison. Um, I like the Truman Show a lot. It feels like it's very uh, rich with sermon illustrations. I asked you this before, I think. But um, in the Truman Show, why did you want him to escape? I mean, did you think his life is going to be better outside of Seaside, Florida, or wherever they filmed it? Is he going to be richer or happier, have a different, better friends, a better or worse life? I'm guessing his life's going to be a lot worse in a lot of ways. But when he got through that door, I was like, yes, I'm glad he got out. This is excellent news. And why? It's because he's a human being. And human beings aren't meant to be props on a soundstage. They're not meant to be puppets. Uh, they're meant to express the image of God and the glory of God in their lives. And even though we wreck that so much, it's better than being a slave. Right? You wanted to be free. You wonder if, if the uh, words about Jesus were not beautiful to Lydia because, um, because she was a business person and a rich person. And if you're a rich person and a business person, you get used to everybody treating you like a rich person and a business person. All your relationships take on a transactional edge. Um, you feel like your friends are friends with you partly because they like you, but partly because uh, you've met some financial standard or you're their people or you can, you can pick up the check or whatever else, you know, that people kind of are using you as well as liking you. You know, being rich is like having a pickup truck. You've always got friends, right? but you're not sure why. And, uh, here she hears a story about love that is not transactional. By someone who's come not to demand more things of her, not to set more performance marks for her in her life for, so she can hit them and be successful and have her parents' approval. Here's someone who's come to sacrifice for her, uh, asking nothing in return. Not transactionally, but a gift of grace to her. And uh, who knows if she's ever been loved by that, loved like that, by somebody who wasn't trying to use her. Um, but somebody who really just loved her. Um, she's being brought out of a transactional kingdom into a kingdom of self-sacrificial love. 
And that is pretty beautiful. So she's free now in a way that she never has been her whole life, even though she hadn't messed up her whole life. So not at all like the slave girl. Very different life for this girl. Her prison bars are visible. She's demon-possessed and prostituted because of it. She's got people who have enslaved her, who make money off of her as a fortune teller, because she's spiritually tormented. And instead of wanting to help her, they want to keep her tormented because she's a cash cow for them. And so for this woman, spirituality isn't an amenity you add on to the rest of the beautiful things in your life. Spirituality is this awful subject. And you can tell just from her reaction and whatever this demonic influence is, her reaction to Paul and Silas uh, is like she's repulsed by them and she's drawn to them at the same time. Kind of like a Gollum character. Um, she wants to be free and human, but uh, recoils against it at the same time. Took several days, it says, for her to be annoying. Paul's a different dude than I am. <laughs> And also, he could do something about it. He cast out the demon, which uh, I haven't seen happen much. <laughs> so, but she's saying this stuff. It sounds like she's a hype man in some ways. These men are the servants of the Most High God. But really, what she's saying isn't helpful. It's, it's relativizing. She's saying, uh, these men are talking about one of the bosses in the Pantheon. And uh, so she was trying to... Uh, include Jesus and what they're saying about Jesus in the pantheon in a way that wasn't actually helpful. And so that's why he became annoyed and then uh, cast the demon out of her, this wild power encounter. Nothing, I've never seen anything like that. It wasn't in a movie. And uh, so Jesus comes to set her free and he conquers uh, devils and pimps and puts a stop to their tyranny in her life, delivers her from them. Uh, you think Jesus isn't going to be beautiful in her eyes? Um, I don't know. Maybe that's, that's when I feel most hopeful for people with regard to the Christian faith and life with Jesus is when uh, they're you know, three times down and out and don't have any hope that anything's ever going to be different and then find the hope of being loved and rescued and given a future. Um, it's hard to see how that wouldn't be really appealing to somebody in her situation. But now because of what Jesus does to these tyrants in her life, she is free. And uh, that's, a, that's a beautiful story. You love her story. Um, we don't know her name yet, but we'll know her name one day. Her pimps didn't take it well. Right? They were going to lose their money. Uh, no more fortune-telling income. And so they stir up the crowd with ostensibly religious and patriotic objections and say these people are troubling us and these are things that Romans aren't supposed to believe and the Jews don't like it either. And they wind up being tortured publicly, beaten with rods, stripped, and then thrown into jail. And you got to wonder while they're there, and they're, they're put into these stocks that aren't just like Jamestown stocks. These are ones that splay your legs in a way that cause you to cramp up, and they're excruciating. It's a torture device. And uh, they got to be thinking, Who's, whose idea was it to go to Europe 
Like, was that? Because this doesn't seem like a very good idea. It's not going great so far. You know, their perspective on Europe spiritually and what it was then and what it was going to become, it probably would blow them away, the intervening years in history, to see what happened there. But we have the perspective of the narrator, the Holy Spirit, and we know that what's going on in their lives is not the failure of their mission. What we know is there's a God who is pursuing Europe, and there's a God who is pursuing a specific jailer who lives in Philippi. And to get after them, uh, he sends Paul and Silas to their, to his jail. So they're there. They're singing. Uh, who knows? I mean, they couldn't sleep, I'm sure. But they're singing and praying enough that other people can hear them. And it's pretty subversive to sing in jail. You know, it's like the, the Christmas songs we looked at, like Mary's song. You know, God will cast down the kings from their thrones and lift up the meek and the lowly and scatter the proud and... You know, those kind of songs in prison get your attention if you're singing about hope of a real king when you're in a different king's jail. Um, And what you wind up with is this bizarre situation where the only people in this whole story that are free are the people who are being tortured in prison. They're the ones who are free in a way that no one else understands at this point. And the jailer has to deal with this. You know, he has to look and see what, what's going on with these people. He's hearing their songs. So these people who are, who are in pretty severe suffering, haven't been beaten like this and now being tortured this way, seem to have a peace about them that I don't have and a joy that's not possible for me to explain. You wonder, what does he think about that? We don't, we don't, we're not really told... Um, you surmise a little bit about him, but you know that almost all the jailers in the Roman Empire at that time were ex-military, retired military. And so you, you sort of can make some conclusions about him. You know he's a family man, too. He's got a family there, ex-military. He's, uh, he's got a hard streak because they didn't say put these guys in prison and torture them. They just said put them in prison and, and make sure they don't escape. And he said, yeah, well, I'll ramp up, you know, I'll double down on that with the torture part. Assume he's probably spiritually indifferent. How many uh, ex-military people uh, that are hard like this do you know that are, you know, eager to go to Sunday school? (laughs) You know, not too many usually. Um, Probably knows religious people. May not be hostile to religion, but it's just not his bag, you know, I... Before my dad was baptized, he used to say on any religious question, that's your mama's department. That's your mama's department. And uh, it wouldn't be hard to hear those words in the Philippian jailer's mouth, I don't think. You know, to, to be religious is to be domesticated, probably. And it's to jump out of the ruts of your life that you've dug for all these years and to change in ways that you think are probably not possible to change, right? You know, he's got a retired military, he's got his family, um, he's got this work, and it's just who he is now. And religion's not a part of that. He's just not a church-going type. He's not a spiritual guy. Never expects that any of this is going to happen to him. And so he's probably not listening to the hymn saying, hey, guys, tell me about this Jesus. You know, he's probably rolling his eyes at him until the earthquake. And uh, <laughs> earthquake's sort of an attention-getter like a very targeted earthquake. They, we'd say surgical strike in our 
our, the parlance of our day. And uh, like it breaks open these torture devices and each of the doors in the prison. <laughs> you know? And I don't know if he's superstitious or not, but if you were even a little superstitious, you'd be a little curious at that point about what's going on. And what's going on is his world has fallen apart because the only thing that he is certain sure about is honor in his life. And he has failed in his work and he has dishonored himself and his family. And he's going to now do the honorable thing. Right, so he's ready to take his own life. And then he finds out that they're still there. And these weird people are even weirder now. They had joy and suffering, but now these people that I tortured could have walked out of here easily and they didn't. And it's a tremendous kindness to him because it saved his life. And so now the guy that you probably would have had a hard time chatting up about uh, spiritual things and the importance of Jesus' resurrection, now he's ready to talk, right? Now he's ready to talk. And he says what sounds like really excellent uh, Christian lingo. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And, um, but he's surely not saying, explain the doctrine of justification through the substitutionary atonement of Christ to me. You know, and, you know, how are people made right with God through faith in Jesus? You know, what he's basically saying is, ah, fix my life. Fix my life. Um, I... I ready to kill myself over all this because everything's falling apart around me and now if I'm going to live none of my realities work anymore I don't know I don't know what to do how to think about my life anymore and they talk to him and say your biggest problem is not losing your job and covering for yourself with this embarrassing incident Um, your big problem is you're swept up in the wrong kingdom and what you've lived your life for and what you're putting your weight down on isn't substantial enough to hold you and you need a whole different king you need a whole different life and so they say what do i do and he does they basically say you don't do anything you believe you look at what jesus has done for you and put your hope in him because he's a king worth following Uh, he's the rightful king and he's the one who can set you free change the things about you that you thought surely could never change the ruts that are super deep in your life, uh, he can change those things. And that's what they tell him, and he does. He, he's baptized. He and his whole family puts his trust in what Jesus has done for him and gives Jesus his allegiance. And, uh, man, do you know anybody like that guy? And uh, do you ever feel like praying for them? It's just like they're the people that have been on your, your list of things and people you pray for the longest because you think, gosh, they're never going to change. Uh, they're uninterested, they're indifferent, they just, it's never going to happen. Well, it can happen, right? It can happen as sure as for us as for them. So all three different people, they're different, they're not all the same, um, but they're all set free by Jesus and all found a way somehow to get deinstitutionalized from their prison. Do you remember how Red in Shawshank Redemption talked about Mr. Brooks? Brooks uh, had lived his whole life in prison and was paroled near the end of his life, and it was terrifying to him. And so he contemplated killing somebody in prison so he could stay. And his friends talked him out of that, but when he got out, it was overwhelming to him, and he took his own life. It was a very poignant part of that movie. Um, But Red, as he was describing it, says when people are here long enough, they become institutionalized. They get used to prison and they can't imagine life outside of prison. 
And uh, um, what Jesus does in the lives of all these people is he deinstitutionalizes them, and what they couldn't have imagined changing in their lives actually could change. Um, that they really weren't trapped by their past, stuck with the gods that they have foolishly chosen to worship. But there really was hope for them, and it really wasn't too late for them. And that's pretty sweet for all of us to hear, because we're like them. We live like there's an invisible dog fence around our lives, you know. And after a while, you don't even have to turn the dog fence on anymore once the dog gets shocked a couple of times, and you just think this is just the way things are and have to be. I have to be neurotically busy. Um, because there's some internal hall monitor in my head saying you have to perform, you have to achieve, you have to go, 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 and a little bit more might be enough, so go. Right? And uh, disillusionment, feel like it's too late to reevaluate your life because it's too far in. And you missed it, like you miss a plane. And you read these stories and you say, no, that's, that's not true. Jesus is who he says he is. Or you... Think that the mistakes you've made in your life are the story about you and there's never going to be another story. And so you're chained by your memories and chained by your mistakes. And Jesus says, I'm not intimidated by this. I've seen a lot worse than you. And I knew how bad you were when I decided to give my life for you. You're not too far gone. You can escape your prison too. It's interesting in the uh, in the Ten Commandments, you know, um, which get bandied around and used badly a lot. Um, but you've got these ten moral truths forever given to us by God, um, and almost everybody looks at them and says, "Okay, this is how to be good. This is what I have to do to be good." But the beginning of the Ten Commandments doesn't start that way. Right? God describes his relationship with his people first. And he says, look, I'm the Lord your God who's brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Now, don't have any gods before me. And don't make uh, images of me. Don't project me. Um, But it's the deliverance from slavery. It's the relationship of love that sets the tone for us in our life with God. And the obedience part is, is more like wedding vows where you say, yeah, no, I'll forsake all others and cling to you because that's what I want to do. Because you love me and I love you. And when he sets us free from our slavery, that's the relationship he offers. That's what he says in John, our gospel reading today. If the Son sets you free, uh, you'll be free indeed. Let's pray.